Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 24. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. And today we are concluding the story of the Coronado Entrada into the American Southwest. I'm recording this episode very early in the morning on June 5th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. I'm again a bit tardy this week, having recently had more than the usual paying work obligations. I may yet have to make good on my threat to take a week off. But I love the momentum we have now, more than 16,000 downloads and listens. Thank you very much. And I'm loath to put on the brakes. Sanity shall return at some point. In the meantime, thank you again for listening, and please consider writing a review on Apple or your favorite podcast platform. During the last two episodes on the timeline, we have looked at the advance team work for the Coronado Expedition, particularly the reconnaissance mission of Friar Marcos de Niza, who for reasons that remain unclear, to me at least, grossly overstated the conquest potential of the American Southwest. The Good Brothers' report, and especially the tall tales he seems to have spun in the taverns of Mexico City, created great excitement among Mexico's Spanish leadership and catalyzed an invasion for exploration, the Spanish term being Entrada. Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza, the normally sober and deliberative top dog in Mexico City, rounded up his protege, the young and decidedly dashing Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, to lead the expedition, and the two of them put up much of the cost. By the spring of 1540, a couple of thousand Spaniards and Indios Amigos, literally friendly and free Indians, hundreds of horses and herds of cattle, sheep, and pigs were making their way up the west coast of Mexico, aiming for supposed riches of Arizona, all on the basis of a massive intelligence failure. Finally, we concluded last week's episode by reviewing the timeline of the expedition over the next two years to set up various of the stories in this episode. You might therefore want to listen to the last episode, at least, before this one. It is spring 1540. In the eastern United States, devoted and attentive listeners will remember that Hernando de Soto has broken his winter camp at Tallahassee and marched into Georgia and South Carolina on his way to North Carolina, Tennessee, and Alabama as the year unfolds. Soto also believed that a third rich Indian civilization was to be found somewhere in North America, and since he knew about Coronado, he no doubt considered himself to be in a race to find it first. Across Europe, a seven-month heat wave and drought has begun, and it will become so severe that the Rhine and the Seine rivers will dry up. Literally, Parisians walked along the bed of the Seine. In England, Henry VIII has married his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. Her tenure is only six months, short even by the standards of today's celebrity class. Henry finishes his dissolution of England's Catholic monasteries. Europe's Catholics and the new Protestants would spend the better part of the next 100 years fighting the wars of the Reformation, one aspect of which would be the long, cold, and occasionally hot war between Spain and England. The struggle for religious freedom and the Catholic reaction led by Spain would reverberate in the early history of North America. 
In the southwest, the legendary seven cities of gold beckoned. In late April, Coronado took Brother Marcos, who had supposedly gazed upon the grandeur of Cibola. Melchior Diaz, who had returned from his own more realistic reconnaissance mission, and a detachment of 75 horses and some black and Indian servants north from Culiacan on the west coast of Mexico, ahead of most of his expedition. A couple of weeks later, the main group, still numbering more than a 1,000 and herding backup horses and cattle, sheep and pigs, followed along much more slowly. On June 17, 1540, Coronado's advance team crossed the U.S. border just south of Palominos, Arizona, which is a darn tiny place if you look it up on your map app of choice. They moved along the Rio San Pedro northeastward, eventually reaching and camping at an Indian village named Chichitacale, the site of an ancient ruin described in the expedition chronicles as the Red House. The Red House is part of an archaeological site today known as the Kaikendal Ruins, which were excavated by avocational archaeologists in the 1950s. It pins the location of Chichiltecale, and therefore the point of Coronado's entrance into the United States, at least to the satisfaction of the United States Congress, which in 1941 designated the Coronado International Memorial on a scenic site along the border with Mexico, perhaps seven miles away. The original idea was to build a joint memorial with Mexico across the border at that location to foster better ties with our southern neighbor. Mexico was apparently receptive to the idea, but in the end didn't follow through with a comparable designation on its side. In 1952, the Congress gave up and changed the site's designation to the Coronado National Memorial. So we have one of those, in case you were wondering. It is perhaps worth pointing out that the Coronado National Memorial seems to be one of only two places in the United States named after Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, the other being Coronado Cross Park in Fort Dodge, Kansas, a tiny little burg just to the southeast of Dodge City. I had thought that Coronado, California, and the eponymous Hotel Del Coronado might also have been, but apparently not. Now, I'm not saying that a lot of places ought to be named after Coronado the Explorer, but the absence of recognition does stand in stark contrast to the many towns and counties and such named after Hernando de Soto. Corporate America, however, has done a bit better by Francisco Vasquez. The conquistador Happy Chrysler Corporation actually used the Coronado name on a 1954 trim option for its American DeSoto sedan called the DeSoto Coronado. Neither man would have been happy about that. The Coronado name would live on as a Chrysler badge for the South American market for at least 20 years, although on a quick search, I could not find any obvious link to the conquistador in the old advertising. In the event, Chichitacale had no surplus food, which the expedition was beginning to need, but there was fresh water. After resting a couple of days, Coronado and his 75 horsemen moved some 250 miles north by northeast during the Arizona summer to the Sunni Indian settlements on the Zuni River in present New Mexico. Here Coronado had arrived at the first of the cities of Cibola, 
the first of the supposed seven cities of gold, an undistinguished pueblo that the Indians called Awika. You will recall that Esteban had apparently been murdered there, and that Friar Marcos had claimed to have laid eyes on it from a nearby hill. Now we'll pick up Stan Hoig on whose book They Came on Horses, Along with their hunger, disillusionment had been mounting steadily among Coronado's party as they struggled through the harsh, sun-baked countryside that spoke scant of wealth or other reward. Still, for all those who had dreamed of a city with streets of gold, the sighting of this first Pueblo city was ever more disheartening. When they saw the first Pueblo, such were the curses that some of them hurled at Fray Marcos that may God not allow them to reach his ears. You dirty-eating piece of slime! You scum-sucking pig! You son of a motherless goat! Yep, I'm sure those Spanish cavalrymen would have sounded just like the three amigos. Back to Professor Hoig. Just beyond the crossing of the Zuni River at the present New Mexico border, the Cibola expedition caught its first glimpse of the fabled city, the Indian name of which was Huica. Pedro de Castañeda described it as a small pueblo crowded together and spilling down a cliff. He wrote, It is a pueblo with three or four upper stories and with up to 200 fighting men. The houses are small and not very roomy. A single patio serves the neighborhood. Having ascertained that the streets of Huica were not actually paved with gold, the Spanish consulted their Maslow's hierarchy of needs and realized they desperately needed food. One of the Spanish had already died of hunger, as had several of the Indios Amigos and black slaves. Coronado dispatched Captain Garcia Lopez de Cardenas and 15 riders to scope out the area. They found some apparently friendly Indians who said they could supply them with food, and studied the local topography to anticipate where the Indians might attack if they were not so friendly after all. They weren't. As Coronado and his men approached the village, 300 Indians armed with bows and arrows and carrying shields, never a good sign, confronted the Spaniards, yelling defiantly at the intruders and tossing handfuls of dirt in the air. A small Spanish detachment moved forward bearing trade goods and going on about coming in the name of his Lord Jesus Christ and such. But that did not seem to work. The Indians of Cibola were as belligerent as they had been, shall we say, last episode, when they threatened to attack the small band led north by Melchior Diaz earlier that year. They opened up a barrage of arrows, most of which ineffectually bounced off the Spanish armor. One buried itself in the robes of Friar Luis, and they hit several of the horses. According to Coronado's subsequent report to Mendoza, he continued to tell the Indians he wanted peace, but with the approval of the friars, always useful, he ultimately ordered his cavalry to charge the Indians. Professor Hoig calls this, quote, the first known encounter between Indians and horses within what is now the United States of America. With the greatest respect, I disagree. Not only had Soto's mounted men already encountered Indians in the American Southeast, but the expedition of Panfilo de Navais, which had horses until they had to eat them on the beach, 
used them in combat with Indians in Florida as far back as 1528. The Indians at Awika, however, did not panic, which is impressive considering how scary a charging warhorse can be. They retreated into the Pueblo, got on the roofs, and resumed showering arrows at the Spanish. Coronado ordered his men to dismount and led them in an infantry assault on the Pueblo. Now it gets interesting, per Professor Hoig. Coronado had now taken the lead, and his gleaming armor drew special attention from the Indian archers, who saw him as a target of choice. An arrow struck him in an unprotected leg, and he suffered small facial wounds and bruises on his arms and legs. He was pelted by rocks until finally a large missile struck his plumed helmet, driving him from his mount. He lay sprawled on the ground unconscious, his nose bleeding and his leg badly bruised, until Cardenas came to his rescue. The captain threw his body over that of his captain general until others arrived to drag Coronado away to safety. Coronado remained unconscious. He had suffered three wounds in the face and bruises all over his body. The arrow wound caused his leg to remain swollen for some time before it healed. When he finally awoke in a tent, the battle was over. The battle for Awika was not terribly bloody as these things go. In addition to Coronado, two other Spanish soldiers were injured, and three horses were killed, and somewhere between a dozen and many Indians died. In the end, the Indians split town en masse, taking refuge atop a defensible mesa some distance away. When the starving Spanish entered the town, they stuffed themselves on the food left behind, including maize, beans, and turkeys. They also found evidence of a steban, his death scattered around the Pueblo. A few days later, a delegation of the defeated Zuni returned, apologized for their folly in resisting the Spanish, and were duly permitted to return back to their village. Among them was a young captive Indian boy named Bartolome who had been with Esteban. Coronado requisitioned him as an interpreter. Coronado and his advance guard stayed in a week over six weeks, well-provisioned by the Indians. He dispatched small, fast scouting expeditions to explore the region, the first under Captain Pedro de Tovar to a place named Tisayan in what is today the Hopi Indian Reservation of northeastern Arizona. The Hopis confronted Tovar's horsemen, sprinkling sacred cornmeal to form a line on the ground. I dare you to step over this line. Okay, I'm a-steppin'. One of the Spanish stepped across it. The record does not suggest whether he did so out of ignorance or hubris, but if I were a betting man, I'd go with hubris. And the fight was on. A few Spanish were injured, a few Indians were killed, and the Hopi sued for peace. Before returning to Hawika in mid-August, Tovar toured other Hopi pueblos and heard tell of a large river, on the banks of which resided a tribe of giant people. During this time, now August 1540, Coronado sent Melchior Diaz back to Sonora in northern Mexico with a letter for Viceroy Mendoza and to deliver orders to the rest of the army to move north toward Hawika. Diaz also took Friar Marcos along, since more or less everybody hated him at this point. 
Finally, on August 25th, Coronado sent yet another mission, this of 25 mounted men under the trusted Cardenas, to find the alleged large river to the west of the Hopi Pueblos. Cardenas and his men would be the first Europeans ever to see the Grand Canyon. If you've seen it, and you should try to if you haven't yet, you can imagine how amazed the Spanish must have been when they broke through the woods at the South Rim and looked across and down. There would have been no comparable natural wonder in their experience or in that of any other European. At some point in August, while Coronado was still at Awika, and about the time Cardenas was off to discover the Grand Canyon, a delegation of Indians arrived from the east, from roughly the location of Picos, New Mexico. Picos is just to the southeast of Santa Fe, about halfway across the state, perhaps 175 miles east of Hawica. At the head of the group was an old man who was chief of the Pueblo, and a tall, handsome young warrior with a long mustache that the Spanish dubbed bigotes, their word for whiskers. The visitors said they wished to meet the black-bearded men who wore shiny attire and rode around on animals. Word was getting around. These visiting Indians knew a lot about the great herds of prairie cattle to the east, which the Spanish had been charged to find for two reasons. First, they would be valuable in and of themselves, and Coronado was justifiably concerned that his expedition wouldn't find anything of value. Second, at least a couple of the four Narvaez survivors had talked up tales of a vast desert of grass with many cows that pointed the way to supposed cities of gold. Coronado duly appointed Captain Hernando de Alvarado to lead 20 men on a sojourn to the east. They brought Bagotes the chief and their band along as guides and were to report back by late November. Alvarado's men reached the upper Rio Grande, just below present-day Albuquerque, on September 7th. Unlike Bugs Bunny, they took the left turn at Albuquerque and headed up the river to a group of 12 Pueblo towns known as Tigu. From there, they cut east across to Kikuye, the hometown of Bigotes and the chief and their men on the upper Picos River. The inhabitants welcomed them, played music on flutes, beat drums, and spread out a feast. Alvarado would remain in Kikuya several days. Now the wheel of fate would turn rather decisively. The Indians of Kikuya gave Alvarado two captured slaves, both natives of the prairie to the east. One of the slaves was named Sopete and was distinguished by his tattoos. The other slave, the Spaniards decided, looked Muslim, so they nicknamed El Turco, or the Turk, in the original Yankee. The Turk was known as a native of the land that extends toward Florida. After recharging, Alvarado moved east again toward the prairies and the buffalo. Now let's go back to Hoig. The two slave guides would have a profound effect on the Coronado expedition and on history, but the Turk told Alvarado and his party of Spanish soldiers as they moved eastward along the Canadian River to hunt buffalo was startling. The Turk said his original home was on the prairies to the northeast in a country called Quivera. It was a city filled with an abundance of gold, silver, and fabrics. 
Proof of this, he said, could be found in a gold bracelet and other jewelry his Puebloan master, Bigotes, had taken from him. But, the Turk insisted, Alvarado was not to mention the matter to Bigotes or the chief, for they would likely kill him for telling the secret. The Turk's imagination did not stop there. He filled Alvarado's ears with tales that surpassed the conquistador's own imagination. He said as well that the Quivera warriors took the chief out to war in a litter, and that when he wished, he unmuzzled some greyhounds that tore the enemies to pieces, and that they had a very large house where everyone attended to serve him, and that in the doors were hung cotton blankets. Alvarado swung his command around and headed back to Coronado with the exciting news. Meanwhile, Coronado had left Hawica for the well-stocked Pueblos of Tigu, where he determined to spend the winter of 1540 and 41. He left instructions for his army, now marching north from Mexico, to follow in due course. At Tigu, Coronado met the Turk for the first time. If anything, the Turk's fantastic stories had grown in magnificence and shrunken in credibility. Now Quivera's pitchers, plates, and small bowls were fashioned from gold, too. Again, the proof was the golden bracelet that Bagotes had supposedly taken when he captured the Turk. No one listened when the other slave, Sopete, protested that the Turk's stories were lies from beginning to end. No one considered that the Turk might have an axe to grind. Now back to Hoig. Coronado ordered Alvarado to hurry back to Cocuye and procure the gold bracelet. There, Bagotes and the chief reacted with great surprise to the Turk's story, both swearing, no matter how hard the Spanish quizzed them, that there was no gold bracelet or jewelry, and insisting that the slave was lying. Alvarado was far from convinced as to who was telling the truth, but the potential evidence of treasures was too alluring to ignore. He had to have the bracelet. The two Puebla men were politely invited back to his tent. When they arrived, he seized them and placed them in chains with an iron collar around their necks. Not surprisingly, the people of Kikuya, who had befriended the Spanish from the get-go, viewed the ironing of their leaders as a great betrayal. They armed up and confronted the Spanish. Alvarado was able to defuse the situation by offering to help them in fighting an enemy tribe that was on the march against Kikuya. Enemy thusly dispatched, Alvarado took Bagotes and the chief, still in chains, back to Tigu, where the interrogations would continue. Coronado built gallows to threaten the Indians and kept them in chains all winter. Even as they continued to insist that there was no gold bracelet and that the Turk was a lying weasel. The wintering of Coronado's army in Tigu ensured essentially permanent hostility between the Indians of New Mexico and the Spanish. The Spanish imposed substantial material demands, not only for food, but for blankets and clothing, and responded with ugliness and violence when those demands were not met because they exceeded the available Indian supplies. Eventually, open war broke out. The Spanish would kill some Indians and occupy a Pueblo, and the Indians would retreat to the mesas and wage guerrilla war. This would become known as the Tegu War, the first named war, at least that we know of, within the borders of today's United States. Culpability for the Tegu War and Coronado's conduct of it 
would become the subject of an investigation a few years hence, and the Indians of the area would remain hostile and make war on the Spanish off and on for at least another 150 years. The New Mexican winter had been brutal. The upper Rio Grande had been frozen for four months with ice thick enough to support horses. As the snow and ice melted in the spring of 1541, Coronado's gaze turned east to the Turks' golden city of Quivera. At the end of April, he marched his army to the east, following the Turks' direction. He had dispatched some men to the south with a letter to King Charles, which has been lost, and others remained to hold the fort, as it were, in Tegu. Coronado planned to erect crosses as his army moved across the trackless plains of West Texas and beyond, both so that he could be followed if need be, and so that he could find his way back. The search for even a hint of these crosses, if indeed he found enough wood to make them, has preoccupied scholars for a long time, because if we found even a fragment of a couple of them, it would resolve a lot of the controversy over Coronado's route from this point on. One occasionally reads that Coronado's crosses are the origin of the name Lano Estacado, which means staked plains, the high plains in eastern New Mexico and west Texas, where perhaps the name comes from the supposed practice of Indians before the Spanish, who 19th century scholars claim would mark their path with simple stakes. Modern scholars doubt both stories, insofar as there are essentially no wood to make crosses on the Llano Estacado, and at times the army marked their way with piles of stones or buffalo dung. Still, even a rare tree would provide wood adequate to make a lot of crosses. So the full army of more than a thousand men, hundreds of horses, pack animals, and all that livestock moved east at something like 15 miles a day. Each day, the army assigned a man to count every step he took so that distance between campsites could be measured. Camping for the night involved a lot of work. Since there was no wood, the army gathered buffalo pies for fuel for cooking. To avoid wasting pointless days of travel, scouts were sent ahead in teams to sort out the best route, which, sad to say, we do not know except in the most general terms, and that in the end... An advance guard made it to southern and perhaps eastern Kansas. There were some interesting moments along the way. At one point, a mounted scouting expedition came across a vast herd of buffalo and started killing them. They started a stampede, and the buffalo piled into a ravine. The chronicler Castaneda wrote that so many of the animals fell into this that they filled it up, and the rest went across on top of them. The men who were chasing them on horseback fell in among the animals without noticing where they were going. Three of the horses that fell in among the cows, all saddled and bridled, were lost sight of completely. Castaneda does not say what happened to the men who had been riding them. At some point in May, the general sent another scouting expedition forward under Don Rodrigo Maldonado, and they found a large Indian settlement in a ravine. Castaneda's description is intriguing. Cabeza de Vaca and Durantes had passed through this place so that they presented Don Rodrigo with a pile of tanned skins and other things and a tent as big as a house, which he directed them to keep until the army came up. 
the Spanish began fighting over the best skins, which was not actually what the Indians were expecting. Castaneda again. The women and some others were left crying because they thought that the strangers were not going to take anything, but would bless them as Cabeza de Vaca and Dorantes had done when they passed through here. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember that Cabeza de Vaca and his crew gave away all the gifts they were given for their blessings, except a minimal amount of food and clothing. Turns out that was a Cabeza de Vaca thing, not a Spanish thing. Finally this, they found an Indian girl here who was as white as a Castilian lady, except that she had her chin painted like a Moorish woman. Hmm. Esteban must not have been the only ladies' man among the foreign vice expedition survivors. At another point, a massive hailstorm hammered the party and its animals. Castaneda's description is evocative. While the army was resting in a ravine, a tempest came up one afternoon with very high wind and hail, and in very short notice of time, a great quantity of hailstones as big as bowls, or bigger, fell as thick as raindrops so that in spaces they covered the ground two or three spans or more deep. The hail broke many tents and battered many helmets and wounded many of the horses and broke all the crockery of the army and the gourds, which was no small loss because they do not have any crockery in this region. 1541, it seems, was quite the year for extreme weather. In late May 1541, about four days' ride from the main army, one of the scouting parties met another tribe, which they called the Teos. Some scholars believe the Spanish assigned the name because the Indians greeted the Spanish yelling, Teia, Teia, which meant friend, friend in their language. Regardless, this encounter and the Spanish understanding of it would lead to the naming of Teos, and eventually the Republic, and then the state of Texas. The Teos agreed to help the army to Quivera, which was many miles to the north by a rough trail. Wising up, the Spanish would not let these new guys speak to the Turk, as their account more closely corresponded with Sopete and the other Indians. Even Coronado's wishful confidence in the Turk began to fade. Rather than haul the main force all the way to Quivera, which would have been very difficult given the infrequent fresh water and the buffalo-only diet, Coronado again divided his force. At some point in July, Coronado sent the main army back to Tigu, where there was at least food and water. He then led 30 horsemen, the usual complement of friars and a few black and Indian servants, free and otherwise, and the various Indian guides, prevaricators and otherwise, north in search of Quivera which he found, after a fashion, in August. Spoiler alert, Quivera had no gold or other meaningful lootable wealth. It was, however, the site of a bunch of fairly prosperous Indian villages, so in the end, a real place. Now at this point, there's a lot of arcane disputation about the route of Coronado's advance party, both in its departure and ultimate point of arrival. Roughly speaking, the point of departure is somewhere in the Texas Panhandle, still on the Llano Estacado, perhaps in the area of Lubbock. The consensus location of Quivera is around Hutchinson, Kansas, which is roughly 317 miles as the crow flies from Lubbock and not far northwest of today's Wichita. 
The advance party spent close to a month exploring the region, you know, since they had come that far, and probably reached as far north as today's Lindsborg, Kansas, another 40 or so miles north of Hutchinson. The evidence for this comes down to one clue, a small piece of 16th century Spanish chain mail found in 1915 by an early archaeologist studying the site of an ancient Indian village. In no event did Coronado find anything that matched up with the Turks' fanciful tales. The men had long wanted a shot at interrogating the Turk using more persuasive methods, and until now Coronado had protected him. No longer. He ordered Captain Diego Lopez to interview the Turk again and learn why he had led them astray. The Turk confessed. He'd been put up by local Indians to draw Coronado's army out on the trackless plains where they and their horses might die of thirst or hunger. This would be the end of the Turk. Under cover of darkness, one of the Spanish garroted him. The Turk was buried at night in secret in a concealed grave, knowing that the locals would not be happy if they knew he had been executed. Castaneda says the honest guide Sopete knew, however, and that the Turks' garroting pleased Sepete very much because the Turk had always said that Sepete was a rascal and that he did not know what he was talking about. Coronado released Sepete as he had promised. He disappears from history. As Professor Hoig imagines, Sepete may well have dined out on his stories for the rest of his life. With that, in late August 1541, Coronado and his men left Quivera and with the help of new Indian guides who were presumably motivated to get them back to New Mexico, made their way to Tigu by early October. Coronado headed into the winter camp, fully expecting to resume his exploration in the spring of 1542. That would not happen, because Coronado would almost die in a freak accident. Quoting Professor Hoig, On St. John's Day, December 27, 1541, he went out with an officer for a horseback ride in the countryside. The two men were having a friendly race, and Coronado was in the lead with his spirited sorrel when his saddle girth broke. The captain general was thrown to one side in the path of the other man's galloping mount. As the officer's horse passed over him, a hoof struck Coronado in the head. It was a near-death injury. Coronado remained confined to his bed in his Pueblo through the rest of the cold winter, undergoing a very slow and uncertain recovery. His mental state during this period can only be speculated upon, but it is apparent that he yearned with all his soul to be back at his Mexico hacienda in the arms of his wife and family. In the end, that was enough. Unlike Soto, Coronado would know when to quit. In the spring of 1542, the army would leave Tigu and head back to Spanish civilization. They would arrive in Mexico City by late autumn 1542, having been on the road more than three years. More of Coronado's men would survive than those of other failed Entradas, including Soto's, which had been wandering around East Texas as Coronado returned to Mexico and was now headed back to the west bank of the Mississippi to build those pinnaces that would bring them back to New Spain in 1543. Speaking of Soto, there was one documented degree of separation between the two Entradas. 
In the summer of 1541, when Coronado sent his main army back from the Texas panhandle to Tigu, a tattooed Indian woman who had been held by one of the captains against her will, and it should be said against Viceroy Mendoza's orders, escaped. She made her way east, and roughly a year later was picked up by Luis Moscoso's remnant of the Soto Entrada. She represented the only known connection between the two expeditions while they were in the territory of the United States. We have now covered the three early Spanish entradas into our self-imposed territory, the borders of today's United States, those of Panfilo de Narvaez, Hernando de Soto, and Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. With the exception of a handful of Franciscan friars from the Coronado Entrada who stayed behind in Tegu to convert Indians and one naval expedition up the West Coast, it would be almost 20 years before another Spanish attempt to explore or settle the United States. In that sense, we have now concluded the early era of Spanish exploration of North America. I know that I learned a lot in doing these, and I hope you did too. And yet, it's interesting to remember that Soto and Coronado were once so well-known that towns and counties were named after Soto, Chrysler automobiles were branded with both their names, and the United States Congress of the 1930s and 40s appropriated real money to recognize them. That would never happen now, and not only because hashtag cancel Soto and hashtag erase Coronado would trend on Twitter. Hardly anyone would know enough about them even to catch the attention of Congress. That fact is a reminder of the changing emphasis in the teaching of history over the last hundred years. Finally, it may be that the fashion will swing back to learning more about those early North American conquistadors once again. I have mentioned a couple of times the idea of vast early America, a way of looking at American history developed or at least named by Karen Wolf, who is the executive director of the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture and professor of history at William & Mary. Her point, which I may get around to discussing in more detail in a sidebar episode, is that the real history of the United States is much more than the traditional march of English settlement west from Jamestown and Plymouth. That is my point, too eager as I am to get to Jamestown and Plymouth. Thank you again for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell at least one friend in person, now that you can do that, and consider following us on the History of the Americans podcast Facebook page or subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>